0: Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. Chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our women's program director Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the September edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Stephanie Burke, the chairperson of the Accessibility and Special Circumstances Committee, a volunteer position in U.S. Chess. She is a mom of four boys, ages ranging from ages 12 to 20 years old, as well as a cognitive neuroscientist by training with a focus on learning acquisition, literacy, and primary auditory cortex. Her second born found chess, and that's found in air quotes, at the age of nine in St. Louis. And now the whole family is involved with chess in various ways, including their dog, Rook. Although Stephanie does not play chess herself, she feels strongly that it should be accessible to all who want to play, learn, or teach. Stephanie and her family now live on a small farm in Maryland, where she is joining me via Zoom. Thank you for being here, and welcome to One Move at a Time, Stephanie.
1: Thank you, Dan.
0: So let's get right to the beginning. About how, So how did your son find chess, in, in, in your words with the quotes, and how did that then make its way through the entire family?
1: Um, Thank you. It's a great question. And one that we actually get asked quite often. When your nine-year-old comes home and says, mommy, can you teach me something? Typically, the answer is yes. But I didn't know how to play chess. And I said, ask your father, figuring maybe my husband would know enough to teach him. And my husband said, sure, I'll teach you. Never planning on teaching him because he doesn't really play chess much himself. And, well, let's just say Ben got bored waiting for us. So he went to the library and he took out a book and taught himself at night with a flashlight and Lego figures versus military men. And when school started again, he joined the chess club at his school. We were lucky. Our school had a great chess club and a chess instructor. But there was a little problem because within three months, he'd kind of beaten everyone in the school and even beat that teacher fairly quickly afterwards. But St. Louis is a phenomenal place, especially for chess. And so, again, luck would have it. It didn't take us long to find both Susan Polgar at Webster University, as well as the Chess Club in the Central West End. And the two organizations worked beautifully together in helping my son excel and learn chess the way he wanted to learn. And so we were very fortunate with all of the opportunities that were presented to us with the chess world. And so he's been playing ever since, and now he's 16.
0: And then it just found its way to other members of the family in different ways. It did. Sam, especially. uh, Yes. You you told me when we first met, uh, the reason he became a TD was because of its similarities to the legal world.
1: Correct. So our oldest son just turned 20, and he's known since he was 15 that he's wanted to go into law. So he doesn't really enjoy playing chess, but from watching his younger brother in the chess world, he realized that chess tournament directing is very similar to law. And he said, no one's going to give me a law clerkship, but I can become a tournament director. Being a tournament director applies a small finite set of laws or rules broadly applied regardless of race, religion, color, age, gender, language. He said, just like law. And so he then, again, we were tremendously lucky. US Chess took him in, the Chess Club took him in, everyone took him in and mentored him and gave him opportunities so that he actually became the youngest national tournament director we have. And he's been able to go, the way he says it, he says, I was able to get and support my younger brother. I was able to get a great job that teaches me about the law. I have a job that paid something throughout high school and part of college. And I get to travel around the country meeting lots of wonderful people. And so he's really found his niche within the chess world without ever really playing the game.
0: I, I have to ask, did he, has he ever had to rule on one of Ben's games?
1: Um, on purpose, no. <laughs> so thankfully, everyone recognizes that he is his brother. And Sam is super ethical about that as well. And when there are issues with one of Benjamin's games... Ben knows not to go to Sam and Sam knows not to go to Ben. They always get another TV.
0: Mm -hmm. Are the other two boys, are they just casual players or or, or are they getting into it in a big way as well?
1: Um, So no, the younger two boys, one knows how to play. And if we have a grandmaster hanging out at the house, he'll challenge the grandmaster to a game. And the grandmaster will always laugh and beat him in like six moves. And Matthew's happy and the grandmaster's happy. And it's all very fun and casual. And then my youngest one really likes math. And he's like, you all can take care of the chess. I'm happy working on math. So the youngest one knows how the pieces move, but doesn't really enjoy playing, but loves cheering for his brothers. Um, And so that's his involvement or lack thereof kind of in chess, but he's aware of it. He knows what it is. If he ever wants to pick it up, there is no shortage of teachers here in this house for him. But everyone's kind of found their own way with chess in the house, including, as I said, the dog. (laughs) So um, I will say that when we got her as a puppy and her name was Rook, there were tons of really silly jokes in the house. Like if someone jumped over the puppy, someone else would scream out, Castle, Um, because she's a Rook. Um, But yeah, so her job in chess is actually a little different. There are many people who probably have met her. She's a fully trained service dog. And her job is to work specifically with children who are on the spectrum at chess tournaments. We find a number of kids when, they, when they're in chess and they're in a chess tournament game or tournament and they play the games, when they lose the first game, they're kind of okay. When they lose their second game, they're not okay. But if they go on and lose a third game, the escalation process is so extreme and so quick that sometimes they don't even recognize it's happening because of the autism spectrum disorder. And so they can't easily de- de-escalate. So Rook has had thousands of hours of training whereby she can't make anyone feel better. She's not emotional support dog, but she's trained to lay down at the feet of anyone we put her at. And as a child starts to escalate, the dog leans her body closer to say, hey, stop paying attention to the chessboard and pay attention to yourself. De escalate now. If that doesn't work, she puts her chin on the player's knee to say, come on, really, really, stop. The game's great, but pay attention to you. And then if that doesn't work, she'll come and find me no matter where I am in the room and switch places with me. And I'll go to the child she was working with, and she'll stay with the child I had just been with. So this way, the goal is to help a few more kiddos through the tournament in a way that they can enjoy playing.
0: Now, you didn't train the dog. It it came to you adopted her as a trained dog.
1: No, we trained her.
0: Oh, you did? So... um, So uh, that that raises all sorts of questions for me. Um, So first of all, um, any of us who are dog people, we've all taught our dogs to, you know, sit and stay, and and those are pretty easy behaviors. Correct. You're talking about very advanced behaviors, and and I can't even fathom how you go about training them to do what you've just described. Can you talk in in, in simplistic terms about how that's done?
1: Yes. So- For most service dogs, especially the original ones, which were for people who are blind, the dog itself had to pass a personality test and an intelligence screening or trainability screening and a whole bunch of other tests before it could be trained. So when we got this particular dog from a breeder, um, she's a standard poodle. And so she doesn't shed. It's hard to be allergic to her. And she's actually genetically missing the protein in the saliva that most people are allergic to. So it's really hard to be allergic to this dog. And that's why we got her because I'm allergic to dogs. Um, And so when we went to the breeder to get her, I told the breeder that there was a good chance I would want this to be a service dog. And so we did all the testing on the puppy at that young age before we ever brought her home. So having passed those tests right off the bat, you're you're talking about a different type of dog right away. Once you have a dog that has tested as being a potential service dog, the training starts, well, at least for a poodle, not really until it's about 12 months old because it's not able to really understand more than your simple commands much before then in a reliable way. Um, We did train her with um, treats. We trained her with verbal commands. She wears a choke collar when she's working as opposed to a harness, for two reasons. One, she's a smart dog. She's not going to pull on that choke collar. But if she's in a room with 300 people, I have to maintain control of the animal. And so she knows when her choke collar is on, she's working. And everything is tied at that point to what her jobs are. So she was always able to sense when someone was upset. Um, A lot of visual cues, a lot of eye gaze cues. And being rewarded with praise was typically what she preferred rather than treats, which, again, is important for a service dog because when they're actually doing their job, you can't constantly be feeding them. And so first it was pairing the pushing against someone when, for example, a leg was shaking. Then, and basically we went from there. To the different behaviors that she might see or experience until she could kind of feel it herself. It was hours, (laughs) thousands of hours of training. But she likes it, she enjoys doing her job. And anyone who's seen her will tell you that when she's had enough, she actually really does climb up onto my lap like a two-year-old. And that's how I know, okay, she's done. And we put her Somewhere else and let her off work for a while.
0: And of course, uh, my memory is that standard poodles are right up there with border collies as considered some of the smartest dogs. Correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. they are. Uh, <laughs> and so she's, she's worked in Chicago. I think she's worked in Indianapolis. So when we were living in St. Louis, we brought her to several tournaments.
0: I think it's fairly common for people to see service dogs, uh, these days, but seeing them at a chess tournament and maybe specifically a scholastic tournament probably is not that common yet. Correct. Um, have you had issues where a parent feels like, Oh, uh, this other kid has an advantage because they've got this dog at their feet.
1: So, um, she's a black standard poodle and When she lays down next to someone, she kind of blends in to the background. It's not easy to see her. And so most people in the tournament don't even know that she's there doing her job. Um, We've had several people come over to us when she's not actually next to a child to ask about why the dog is there. And when I explain, most people have been pretty receptive. We did have one player kick the dog saying, I hate dogs.
0: Oh, oh gosh.
1: (laughs) But the dog did exactly what the dog was was trained to do. She did absolutely nothing. She didn't respond. She didn't bark. She didn't yelp. She didn't bite. And so, um, unfortunately, that player had issues. But there isn't anything I can do about that. Most people have been really receptive. The other thing is is that most dogs who are service dogs are not supposed to be pet when they're working. I cannot bring a standard poodle to a tournament with two to 300 kids and their families and say, don't touch. Mm -hmm. So again, with her choke collar on, anyone can pet her and she will sit there and not do anything. Her regular collar, no. Then she's more protective and more dog-like. But when she's working, most people, even people who have been afraid of dogs, have gotten to know her and were comfortable with her. So when they saw her there, they had no problem with it.
0: Was Rook the first service dog you've trained?
1: Yes but I had neighbors growing up who trained German shepherds. So I kind of learned from them Mm -hmm. and then I worked well, I've been doing experimental psychology for a very long time. And so there was always a lot of work training pigeons and rats and monkeys. And so it's not that hard to condition an animal when you have that background.
0: Yes, yes. Well, I think this allows us to transition very uh, easily into the main reason you're on the show is to talk about the Accessibility and Special Circumstances Committee. Yes. Uh, You're a relatively new chairperson. When, when When were you appointed chair?
1: I was appointed chair a little over a year ago. And so right as the world was shutting down with that delegates meeting, I was asked to step in and become chair. Our leader, Janelle has been amazing, and she kind of founded the whole committee, which is fantastic, and she and Martha and everyone else on the committee have worked really hard. I was on the committee last year, so when I was asked to chair it this time because of term limitations, it was clear that I would enjoy working with this group again and in this capacity. Let's,
0: yeah, and let's start with just talking about why it's called what it is. Yes first of all, why the word accessibility instead of disabilities? And then also let's talk about why special circumstances is added rather than folded under accessibility.
1: Absolutely. So when someone thinks of a person with a disability, there are two ways of thinking of that person. You can think of the person first, or you can think of the disability first. And U.S. chess, but our, our committee in particular, feels very strongly in respecting people for who they are. And so when you talk about a player with a disability, we focus on the fact that this is a person, this is a player or a teacher or a coach, and not the defining feature being the disability. And so with the committee being accessibility, we're talking about the fact that these are ch- people interested in chess who, in order to play like everybody else, may need an accommodation to make it accessible, but they themselves are fully respected as whatever their role is in chess that they would like it to be. And so when we talk about accessibility and special circumstances, we're actually talking about two separate things. The the whole committee was designed to create environments for all players with potentially limiting factors can play together in safety, comfort, dignity, fairness, respect. So, the accessibility branch of it does refer to people who have a disability and just need an accommodation to make it accessible. Special circumstances is actually a little different because when you think of a disability of any kind, is it permanent? Is it temporary? If you break, if you're a chess player and all of a sudden you break your leg or you get into a car accident or something's wrong and physically, you are in a cast and you can't get to the board as easily or you're in a wheelchair well that's a special circumstance it's not a long term disability hopefully but it's a special circumstance it doesn't mean you should stop playing chess likewise if you're part of a religion that allows you to play chess but maybe not to, not use a clock or anything electronic on a certain day of the week well why should you be barred from playing chess the whole rest of the time when a simple accommodation can be made during that time. That's another special circumstance. And so the committee was really designed to treat all people interested in chess as equals so they can play over the board with the knowledge they have, the training they have, the rating they have. The rating equalizes the players or puts them in a group that that they can be paired. The disability or special circumstance doesn't have to.
0: And given that, how does the, our committee feel about the, the whole idea of events that are closed only to players with disabilities versus events that are just open and, and just are accessible to players with disabilities?
1: Of course. So that is a hot button topic, which is great because if you don't discuss these hot button topics, then... You can't ever agree to disagree. You can't get things out in the open. Transparency is super important to our committee and overall. There's really good data that shows that when people have a chance to compete or learn in an equal and even, play, I, don't, I want to say playing field, but not really, just context, as everyone else, then the quality of education, competition, play and learning is at the highest level it can be. When you take people out of that mainstream, if you will, environment, you're limiting who else they can play, learn and learn from. And study after study shows that it does not produce the same context. And so there are arguments that if you put people together based on an extraneous factor, then they get to take pride in the fact that they won that. But then you have the other side, which is, well, if they don't play people who are in the mainstream area, then they don't know how they compare against people in that mainstream area. So US Chess and the committee have really focused on the background data of inclusion. And so by focusing on a social model of disability, which basically says the main issue for people playing, learning, coaching is an inaccessible world or environment. So let's just make it an, an accessible environment. Then once we find reasonable accommodations, respect is there, everything else is there, and the disability or the limiting factor kind of fades the background. In particular, with the rating system that we have in U.S. chess, and I guess FIDE as well, but I know more about U.S. chess, with the rating system we have, it gives you a picture of what you've just played within the past month and the level you've played at, and that's a great equalizer because it doesn't matter if you have a disability or a special circumstance or not because everyone has the same rating scale. And so as long as we can make the tournament accessible, we can create an inclusive environment for everyone to play in. And that's kind of been the focus of both our committee and US Chess.
0: If we have any tournament directors or organizers listening, what are some practical things that you would recommend to them if they haven't thought about this issue about uh, in getting more... Disabled people participating in their events, and you know, perhaps maybe there are some fears they have about that that you could put to rest.
1: Absolutely, and so one of the things our committee worked really hard on under the direction of Janelle was creating the accessibility guidelines, and these actually got rolled out in the Chess Life Magazine March 2020 issue. Um, and it's a work in progress, and it basically is a guideline and. We're working on the toolkit that goes with it still for tournament organizers and tournament directors to help them come up with the best um, tournament, accessible tournament that they can create. And it has a checklist for them. For example, when you're picking a venue, is it accessible for people with wheelchairs? Does it have a way to make some of the aisles bigger in between tables? Does it have emergency exits and lights so that people can see it if they can't hear or a PA system that's loud enough so they can hear it if they can't, if they can't you know, if they need to be able to hear it louder? Um, and so there are tons of really small things that can be considered if you have a checklist and you don't have to rethink over and over again, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? So, yes, our, we do have the accessibility guidelines. We're working now on how to get this out to everybody, both organizers and directors, but as well as parents and players, so that everyone's on the same page with what U.S. Chess is doing in order to make chess as accessible as possible to everyone who wants to interact with chess. So that's one of our current projects, and hopefully you'll see more about that soon. COVID-19 kind of slowed us down a little bit.
0: Is it fair to say that we are leading the way in the chess world for this, the the U.S. Chess Federation versus other um, federations?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, yes, um, I would like to say that we are leaders because our committee was established before it was trendy to do so. But thankfully, when you take even my competitive nature out of it, the truth is, is that the world is recognizing both chess and outside of chess, that people with disabilities are people first and active integral parts of whatever sport and or activity that they want to play in. And so FIDE is doing their focus, um, as well. They have created, um, uh, online championships for players specifically with disabilities, which we don't agree with necessarily, but it's great that they're doing that for their pop for whoever they think that should be for. They maintain a list of players with disabilities. They have videos that they're putting together with chess players who have disabilities. So they're focusing on it now as well. Their newest thing is they're creating workshops on chess for players with autism spectrum disorder. Um, Again, they're in the beginning stages of it. And so it's great that they're on board and they're working really hard. Thomas Luther's involved with that. And so we're all talking to each other. And I think that's actually the most important thing. While I would like to say that, yes, U.S. Chess is absolutely a leader on making chess inclusive, we're actually not the only ones who are focusing on making the activity or sport available. So maybe the ways we all decide to do it is a little different, but the recognition that people are people, regardless of whether or not they have a disability, is thankfully a lot more broad than just us.
0: I just want to make sure I'm understanding the, the, the whole concept of people, are, 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 that they're people first. This is a, as opposed to looking at someone and say, oh, that's, that's someone with paralysis.
1: That's a paralyzed person versus that's a person with paralysis.
0: Right. Right,
1: And so I can say, so I grew up in the deaf community. I've been signing since I was two years old. And so I can say, oh yeah, that's a deaf person. And for me, that refers to a person with a capital D deaf in the deaf community, growing up deaf, uses American sign language. And that's not an insult because it talks about a specific established community. I can say that's a person with a hearing impairment and that the hearing impairment might be considered a disability. That's specific to that area. But then when you talk about, oh, that, the, oh, let me think. Okay. Uh, Someone who is maybe a below the knee amputee. That's a person with that, 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 there's that that half-legged person. That's not okay. We don't like that. That's not respectful. But you can say there's a person, that person over there, the one who has the leg amputator, or who is a, has a below-the-knee amputee. You can say it that way, but the person part has to come first in order for it really to be as respectful as possible because you don't want it to be the disability that defines the person. The person has a disability. Okay, we can work around that. But it's not that there's anything wrong with the person. Does that make sense?
0: It, it does. It does. It's, it's just about... The way you just flipped the order of a person in a wheelchair rather than a, uh, that, that's, that kind of made sense to me.
1: Okay. And so, for example, FIDE has something out that says the disabled players list. We would never say that. We, we might say we have players with disabilities, but we wouldn't cons- call them the disabled players mm-hmm. because that makes them their own group. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it, it does. It does. I'm, I'm also curious uh, about something you said earlier uh, that, you know, the inclusion is, is one of the reasons why this is so important. Yes. And, but we just had this enforced experiment put on the whole world where everything got moved online for the previous, you know, 12, 18 months. <laughs> yes. um, on the one hand, you might think, oh, this might have been of benefit to the disabled community because you know they they had the the aid of electronics and such uh, for for access. But on the other hand, I wonder, was it a step backwards for people that really like being included in in-person chess tournaments?
1: Yes. So it's interesting. We when we came up with the guidelines, the accessibility guidelines we didn't have a large section on online play for people with disabilities because I don't think we ever considered the fact that all chess would be forced to move online. And so even considering, well, what does it mean for someone with a disability to play online? Does it really equal the playing field? And a lot of times it actually doesn't. We have had people... who need to get up to use the bathroom more frequently for whatever special circumstance. But when the rules came out saying that you couldn't get up from the board, that all of a sudden meant that they couldn't play in the online tournaments because they couldn't sit for that amount of time without getting up to use the bathroom. Whereas in an over-the-board tournament, no one makes you sit in your seat for three hours. But with the camera on you, you had to do that. And so, in that regard, we lost people with with certain disabilities because they couldn't play under the constraint of only sitting there with the camera watching them for that length of time. And there were a number of cases like that where all of a sudden it was like, "Oh, wait a minute! What we thought might be more accessible because now it's online wasn't necessarily the case." And so, we're still in the process of trying to figure out in what ways are players with disabilities affected and what accommodations do they need in order to be able to play online.
0: Now, as chair for a year and you were uh, previously on the committee before that as well, uh, at at this point, we, we must have enough history that there, there can be some accessibility stories that you find particularly compelling. You can share.
1: (laughs) Of course. Um, So, we try and maintain confidentiality, and, so, and we try really to not showcase the quote-unquote special group because, again, it's important for people to understand that just because someone has a disability that they're dealing with, it doesn't make them, well, unique in story, drama, um, inspiration-type situations. And so rather than specific stories like that, I will tell you that I did go to a tournament relatively recently. It was in person and I was looking around the room and there was near an entranceway, one chair that was higher up than all the others. It was like a bar stool height as opposed to um, a normal lower chair. And I watched just to see what would happen. And sure enough, there was a player who came in with a disability, turned out he had mobility issues and he couldn't easily get down into a lower chair. But with a raised chair that was near an entranceway, he was able to play the game just like every other chess player in that room. And it was so simple. It didn't cost the tournament director anything. To just put in a different chair and seat him at a board that was close to a door. And by doing so, that made the tournament both accessible and enjoyable for this player. And I hear of many situations like that, such that once an organizer or a TD knows that the, simple, that the solution is so simple, they can do it and they do do it. And it just it brings more people who are interested into our community. And those are the things that we love.
0: Yeah. Now, change is hard on people, and I, I'm wondering if the guidelines uh, address this at at all. You know, there there must be people who, who feel, oh, you know, he's got an advantage because he's sitting in a bar stool, looking down on the board this way. <laughs> you know, if if someone complains to a tournament director about something like that, I mean. It, is this addressed in the guidelines? And if not, you know, what, what would be your recommendation on, you know, how to educate people on this?
1: You know, chess players all too well, don't you? So, <laughs> um, not only is it addressed in the guidelines, but it's actually in the U.S. chess rulebook. The U.S. chess rulebook has a specific rule. And my oldest son can tell you what it is. I don't remember the actual age and numbers, but it basically says that whatever accommodation a player has, his opponent can ask for the same accommodation. And so therefore, if a player who is playing against the player who needed the higher chair and said, I want a high chair too, the TD needs to go and get a second high chair for the opponent. And that has happened and it's okay because at that point, it's really not a big deal. And the goal is for everyone to play. And so, yes, that has happened. Yes, it's easy to deal with, but it's not just in the guidelines. It's actually in the U.S. chess rulebook as well. And so our guidelines work well with the U.S. chess rules and never against. We work collaboratively in that way, and we make suggestions that tournament directors can use and TDs can use and also have backed up by U.S. chess rules.
0: So, I, I love that because it's such a simple solution. And the fact that it's codified, um, I think, goes back to my earlier question about are we leaders in the chess world in, in this? Do you happen to know if FIDE has similar rules in their rule book?
1: I actually am not sure. So, that was on my list of things that I was going to ask Sam to do, was to look at the feed, because he has his FIDE arbiter certification as well. And so I have not really looked much at the FIDE rules. I know a little bit, but not as much as I would need to. And so um, at this point, I cannot tell you the answer to that, but we will definitely be figuring that out. Right now, I'm just incredibly proud of US Chess and the people who have worked so hard to get all of these rules in place, even before they fully knew what the demands might be. And so I don't know about anyone else, but I'm really proud of us.
0: Oh, no, I, I think you should. I, I'm proud to be associated with an organization that, that has been so proactive in this area and you know, made a direct difference in people's lives.
1: Yes. Now, I will also say that when we ask tournament organizers and directors to help make tournaments accessible, we're actually not putting all of the responsibility on them. We also ask the players who do have a disability that needs an accommodation or wants an accommodation to do their part as well. So the only way this can work is if it's a team effort. And so for example, addressing my own community, if if there's a player who's deaf and wants an ASL interpreter, they need to ask for that interpreter in enough time for the tournament organizer or director to find the correct interpreter Find the funding for the for the correct interpreter so that it's not so it's a reasonable accommodation. So we can't have a person who's deaf come in the day of the tournament and say, hey, I need an interpreter, in like hmm, five minutes when the round starts. That's not a reasonable accommodation. And so by again getting the communication between the player with a disability and the tournament organizer or director. By sharing that responsibility, again, there's collaboration and there's an increased ability to get the inclusive aspect taken care of.
0: So before I get to my closing question for you, is there anything about accessibility in special circumstances um, that we didn't discuss that you want our listeners to know about?
1: Um, Actually, yes, I think there is. One of the important parts of the committee and this whole topic is that it's still changing. We're growing, we're learning, we're trying to figure out what is offensive, what isn't offensive, because there are regional differences. And the goal is never to offend anyone. The goal is always to be respectful and to ask for patience as we're all learning how to together grow be more and more inclusive and so it's kind of um it's kind of really important like right now I believe that FIDE does not acknowledge in their games for people with disabilities a group for people with intellectual mental or psychological disabilities and so It's great that they might have a workshop for how to work with people who have autism or an autism spectrum disorder, but if in their quote-unquote disabled championships, someone with autism can't play in that tournament. And so again, we all kind of have to learn both together and separately where we stand, how we change, how we evolve. It's just it's an ever-evolving, growing process, and we're really trying to be here as a committee for everyone involved to maintain transparency and patience and respect as we continue to learn and move forward. And we're always open. We have an email address, so I don't know if you're able to post our email address. I believe it's accessibility at uschess.org. Yes.
0: So, in the show notes, we if anyone
1: wants to reach yes, out to Yes, in us, the show
0: notes uh, to this, we will have that posted as well as a link to the uh, uh, accessibility guidelines that are on our website.
1: Wonderful. And that is a living, breathing document. We're still working on that. But we have no problem sharing it and, the, and adding in as we need to, as people make suggestions.
0: You may have just answered this in uh, at what you just shared in the, uh, in the previous couple of minutes, but what do you think is the biggest area of opportunity for the committee?
1: Our next major push is going to be twofold. The first is education. We need to start getting the guidelines out there so people can see what we're working on, so they can give us their feedback, so we can make it better, so that we can grow together as one large chess community, one large inclusive chess community. Um, another focus is really making sure that people know that as a committee, we are here for them. We're here for the organizers and directors. We're here for the players. We're here for the coaches. Whatever we can do to help is really what we would like to do.
0: Well, that yeah, that, that's great.
1: And that's the second, you know, the big, two big pushes that we're working on.
0: So before I let you go, I'm I'm want I'm to take this uh, back to your own personal life, and you know, as someone who grew up not as a chess player, how surprised are you that chess has become such a big part of your family's life and such a big part of your professional life now?
1: Um, yes, it, it's actually it, it's something that absolutely boggles my mind. I had no idea that a board game could teach so many life lessons and could teach and provide so much in different ways. So the chess tournament directing, when my son applied to colleges, and he was able to put this on his college application, and he was able to use aspects of it in his college essay, he's not even playing, but he's learned so much. I never, ever would have thought that was possible. For my chess player, we've learned a ton of lessons that I apply off the board as well. And the two big ones that I'll quickly mention, The first one is as parents, how many times do we tell the children, sit still, be quiet, focus? If it's not quiet, if you're not paying attention, you can't learn well, play well, train well. And just as they're starting to get these lessons, we take them to chess tournaments and we expect them to be quiet in that room and focus. And yet we as parents are outside nervously pacing and chattering, so that we have to be told as parents to quiet down. Because we're actually disturbing our children, doing completely opposite from what we told them to do. That was a lesson for me that I had to learn as well. Yes, I might love some of the other parents and want to spend time with them, but if I want to talk to them, I have to be way away from the playing hall. Otherwise, my chatter with everyone else's chatter distracts the players, including my own. So that was a lesson that even I had to learn and, I, and still see happening regularly at tournaments. The other lesson that again applies off the board is rating points. We got caught up in the whole rating point thing for a while too. If he lost rating points, he was devastated when he got over a certain level. He didn't want to play for a little bit because he didn't want to go under that level. And it took us a little while to figure out that for us, and maybe other people think about it this way, maybe they don't, but we now view rating points as currency. And sometimes When he loses rating points, he's learned so much from those losses that we say he's paid for that lesson with his rating points. He's always going to get the rating points back if he trains and plays more. But treating the rating points as currency as opposed to a level has made so much more sense to us and made it so much more applicable outside of just the chess tournament playing area. And so when I think about what chess has done for our family, both on and off the board, I cannot be more grateful to U.S. Chess and to the chess community for really helping me raise my kids and grow our families' ideas and values and experiences.
0: That idea of using reading points as currency in that manner, that's a little bit of brilliance that I've never heard before. <laughs> did you guys come up with this completely on your own or is there, did you borrow it from someone? Oh, no, no.
1: I, I, I don't, I try not to take credit for things, but this is one I can take credit for. I was really annoyed when Ben did something goofy because I had just paid a lot of money for a tournament (laughs) and it was a lesson which I thought he should have known already because I don't play chess. So what do I know? And I had to take a deep breath so I didn't get angry at him. And I said, what do these rating points mean anyway? Well, the rating points was quote unquote money he just spent. I have the money I spent, but he doesn't really understand money I spend, but he understood losing those rating points. And it was at that moment that I equated the two as currency. And I said, okay. And then we kind of ran with that analogy and built on that analogy. And there are some tournaments that he plays where he doesn't win money, but he gets a few rating points. And he, again, for him, that's the same thing as money for me. And so for us, the analogy works well, but I kind of came up with that, so I didn't get mad at him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephanie Burke, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time. This was a wonderfully wide-ranging discussion, and I've certainly learned some things about accessibility that I did not know before we started talking. I hope our listeners are the same. So again, thank you for appearing on the show.
1: My pleasure. May I just say one last thing? Absolutely. We have an amazing committee, and if I can, I would just like to say who's on it, because they've worked so hard both over this past few years, and I know working in the coming years as well. And so, if I can just quickly say who's on it, so people have an idea. Clearly, I'm on it. Judith Stare from California, Janelle Lassoff, Martha Underwood, Ryan Velez, David Day, Carol Meyer is on our committee. Michael Agner, Jim Thone, and then we have two new members as well. And I will ask if we can talk about them the next time some more, but we have uh, Lewis Reed and our new liaison. So um, again, I could not do what we're doing without this amazing committee working together. And so if anyone sees any of them, hopefully they'll thank them as well for all of their hard work.
0: And I spoke to uh, Martha on this show two years ago. I'll also include a link in the show notes uh, to to that episode. But everybody, please listen to that show after you listen to this one. (laughs) (laughs) So again, Stephanie, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films, Photography, and Media. Please visit www7 to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Kariannis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and
1: enhance communities through chess.